Wish You Were Here is a podcast that takes you on a journey through the branding of the world's most interesting places and destinations. And here are your hosts, Moira Gon and Julian Stubbs. Hello world, and if you haven't already guessed it, this week we're in one of Julian's favorite cities, the fab city of Liverpool. Fab indeed it is, Maura. Most of us know it's fab for at least two things. And what are those, Maura? Well, I know it's the Beatles, first of all, and then your, as I would call it, soccer team. Very good, very good. Apart from the fact that we say football. Yes, proper football. Yes, Liverpool is known for its football team and it has even has a second team, the Boys in Blue from Everton. Now, I know you support Liverpool, not the Boys in Blue, or do you? <laughs> no, no, the Boys in Red. Okay, got it. Um, and right at the beginning, we heard Liverpool's fans singing the song, You'll Never Walk Alone. And the guys in red, they're right... But what is this rivalry between these two teams? I mean, isn't, is it just a game? Ah, there you're wrong. It's not a game. And in fact, in the words of Bill Shankly, who was a legendary manager of Liverpool Football Club, some people think football's a matter of life and death. Well, I can tell you, it's much more important than that. Anyway, we are here in this great city to dig a little deeper into what makes this city so fab. That's right. And we have two great interviews coming up. We will be talking with Chris Brown, the director of Marketing Liverpool. And later in the program, we have an incredible interview with somebody you might not hear from a lot, the sister of one of the Beatles. That's right. We're going to be talking with Julia Lennon, John's younger sister, and just an incredible interview with her at the famous Cavern Club. But first up, we want to learn more about Liverpool as a place from a marketing perspective. So let's go to Chris Brown, the director of Marketing Liverpool. Chris, let's start with, a, I think, a really tough question. Mm. What's the most difficult thing about marketing a place as you see it compared to marketing conventional consumer goods, for example? Well, we could spend a long, long time on that particular <laughs> particular subject, but uh, I'll probably try and boil it down from our perspective into 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 around three things. Yeah, mm. um, and I, and I think one of those is that, uh, and and the approach was really taken in Liverpool is about um, buy-in, and it's about I think an understanding that uh, place branding isn't really just the responsibility of one organisation. So it's not the responsibility of Marketing Liverpool to develop and, and deliver this. It needs to be seen as a joined-up approach across all facets of the city. And that's not just uh, businesses. It's residents as much as it is businesses. And it's got to be part of a joined-up narrative. I think for Liverpool, it's the importance of actually how we've seen the development of place branding as repositioning a city and then how you then take it forward to actually turn that realisation of positioning into economic benefit for all those stakeholders. And we adopted a process right in the very start about getting buy-in. So I think buy-in is first and foremost the most important thing. The second thing I think is... and. Uh, one area that I think is a is a, a facet that keeps on coming around for us, this is not a short-term fix. Mm -hmm. This has to be part and parcel of a clearly laid out long-term vision. And 
by building into a long-term vision, you create momentum. And for a city like Liverpool, it's come from nowhere to somewhere. But when you get to somewhere, where do you go from somewhere? And you, you therefore have got a danger of actually of thinking you've arrived and you've done it. And in a global marketplace, not enough, not good enough. Never stops. Never stops. So we have to keep on finding ways of making sure that this keeps energised and we keep on telling the story to different audiences that we're trying to attract. And then the third element I would say around that is, uh, is distinctiveness. Um, and you know, I think we talk about you know, authenticity, very overused in, in many cases, uh, but it doesn't mean that it's not a legitimate ambition. But as a city, I think we're not scared to be different, but we're also, I'll be very clear, that we're not a city that we want to be basically developed around a logo. We don't want a strap line. We want to allow the creativity and innovation of the city to express itself in a way that actually stamps the personality of the place. In that context, we need not to be scared about the things that we haven't got quite right. We need to be very sensible about not overhyping our city. And we need to be reticent of the, of the fact that the audiences that we're trying to sell to in today's global marketplace will find us out very quickly if we're not being authentic about our messaging. So to say that Liverpool now is a truly international city at this moment in time would be a falsehood. Mm. To say that we have an ambition and an energy and a passion to get to that position would be a truth. Mm. And that's why these things all interconnect. Mm. And I think... One of the challenges we've had about buy-in and all these issues is about getting people to recognize it's a journey mm. and it's not something that you, you start one month and finish the next and then move on to something else. Mm. Um, and that, I think, is, uh, you know, is out my, would be my encapsulation of some of the, the key issues around that particular question. Mm. Right, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested to learn this because I'm all the way over here in America, but when, when it comes to, to places, I know that they compete for attention a lot, money, interest. So... In Liverpool, who do you see as your major competitors? Well, it's an interesting one because probably up until a number of years ago, we saw our major competitors be Manchester. And we had a, a, an intense uh, rivalry and competitiveness with Manchester, which actually is quite ridiculous because uh, they're by far and away not our competitor. They're our collaborator. They're 35 miles away from us. And I think our mindset has moved away much more from actually looking at a parochial inside view of what's just up the road to actually stretching her horizons into a more of a global space. And now we have to compete against all global markets. Now, <clears throat> it all depends, of course, on the audiences and the sectors that you're trying to attract. Depends, therefore, on who your competitors in those sectors are. But <clears throat> what we sought to do is to raise our bar and raise our thinking to actually saying if we want to be a Barcelona-esque type city or even in the context of a Chicago, we need to set our ambitions much higher than our domestic competitors. And that, I think, has been the mindset change that's seen us looking to work on a European and international scale, working to see where cities that have, particularly where we've got cities that have a waterfront, so waterfront cities who have a kind of a, a slightly, you know, 
a density around them, which is very different, I find, to traditional urban cities. There's mm. a sort of culture, there's an edge, there's a certain thing about waterfronts. And we've looked at that in the context of working with cities across the world that have got a waterfront, that have developed and, 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 and expanded, whether it be a Hamburg or whether it be a, a Chicago or a Boston or a New York, and looking really at how they've developed and changed and moved in the times. And that set our barometer much more higher. And now I'd like to feel that we don't see Manchester as being the competitor. We actually now probably work closer with Manchester than we've ever done before. It will never extend to the football field, by the way. But <laughs> as, a, as, a, as, a, as an example of working together in collaboration, we're much stronger in that agenda. And, and actually working together, we're, we, we've, we now do a lot of work together, which is not a case five years ago. So I think that's the kind of, the context for us is it was always about raising the bar and always raising our aspirations beyond our local dynamics. So um, Chris, if you can maybe <coughs> give us some numbers in terms of what success the city's seen when it comes to tourism, inward investment, yeah. residential growth. <coughs> yeah. I mean, how do you measure success? What sort of numbers do you look at? Well, there's a, there's a, there's a number of indicators we use from, you know, from GVA, from GDP, from employment, mm. uh, across a number of different barometers. And, and if we just kind of look at some of those, uh, if you look at city, uh, uh, city living as an example, um, Liverpool's population is now stabilised, around about 470, 475,000, in a, in, a, in a region of around 1.4, 1.5 million. Now, in one respect, stabilised is actually a good result for us because that population has gone from a heady position of around three quarters of a million mm. on what was an absolute continual decline. Mm. And that was because basically people you know, who came from the city educated themselves in the city and then left the city because mm. there was no opportunities in the city. Mm. So now we've, we're, we're now finding that that particular decline has stopped. And now actually it's about really looking at the dynamics of that population to get the right residential mix. So we've had a massive growth in student accommodation in the city. And that's primarily because our four universities have grown exponentially, particularly on international students. So Liverpool University now attracts nearly 5,000 Chinese students. Mm. And 10 years ago, attracted three, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. in the comparison. Yeah. So the, the demands of, of accommodation have led that way. But actually, what we're now focusing very much on is getting the right residential mix. So mm. what we need is we need more private rental schemes, mm. we need more residential living, we need more young professionals to want to settle in the city. Therefore, we need to get the facilities of the city in line with those requirements. So actually, it's about changing the mix. But what we have halted is the decline. So that's, that's been an interesting factor. Then if you look at certain sectors, the biggest sector we've had the greatest growth in has clearly been tourism and the visitor economy. So we've gone from a, a position in 2005, 2006, where we had around just over 2,000 hotel bedrooms in the city at that time. This year, we'll pass 7,000. Um, so, you know, that is, that is phenomenal growth in any terms. You know, we built an arena, we built a convention center, we will open a brand new exhibition center, which will double the footprint in, in 10 days' time. <clears throat> we built a new retail community, uh, you know, funded, you know, a billion pounds of money from the Grosvenor uh, estate. So we've created a huge momentum in that type of sector. Uh, and that has seen phenomenal growth. Uh, you know, the challenge for us now is about feeding that uh, that supply with increased demand. 
the area that has that is fundamentally not grown as fast is our inward investment portfolio. And that a lot of it is down to the fact that the perceptions of Liverpool as an inward investment centre haven't been strong. So we now need to turn this ability of our strong quality of life offer into a tangible investment offer. And I think the key product that will probably help that more than any is the development at Liverpool 2, which is the docks development. And that, in one regard, will change the logistics and distribution economy of the UK, never mind Liverpool. So if you take the fact that at the moment, uh, the way that works, and this is off a lot off the back of the, of the opening of the Panama Canal, is that the vast majority of goods that are bound for the north, around 70% of them, all come through the southern ports because the northern port of Liverpool can't, hasn't got the depth mm. to take large container ships. The work that's going on at the moment, we'll see by the end of the year, that Liverpool will be able to take 90% of those large container ships, whereas at the moment it can only take 10%. So if you are a bringing commodities and your end market is in the north of England, you will be able to come direct into Liverpool and take your goods on a much shorter journey than bringing them into the south of the country and having to ship them up. Mm. That will change the dynamics of the logistics and distribution centre of uh, of the UK dramatically, and Liverpool will be the heart of that. Mm. And that is you know, part and parcel of, of, of energising what is probably one of our greatest USPs now, which is our waterfront. And, and that, 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 I think, is an interesting dynamic. So our focus at the moment is about converting this very successful visitor economy journey we've been on since 08 into now a tangible return on inward investment. And that's not just about you know, making sure that existing businesses here want to stay here and expand and, and, and stay here. It's also about attracting more businesses, and particularly in sectors where we think we have strengths. Creative and digital is one of our key strengths. Maritime, logistics, distribution, Low carbon, particularly by using the strength of the of the Mersey around us and the and the the kind of wind power that that generates, we now are starting to get a much more focused approach, and also recognizing that we can't be great at everything. There's always sometimes a city, you know, we always think we're great at everything we do. We're not great at everything, mm-hmm. but we've got areas where we can be we can be strong uh, and we can market ourselves in those strong sectors, and that I think is the journey we're now on. So it's about turning successes in certain areas into successes in others. So let's get some definition of the city. Chris, can you choose three words that sum up Liverpool? Well, I I would certainly, I mean, from our perspective, creative, dynamic uh, and surprising. I would probably be three for me. Um, And they are, they they underpin our, uh, our brand strategy. Um, so all our brand positioning is about, uh, you know, recognizing the entrepreneurial, innovative abilities of our people. And, uh, you know, we, we can talk all day long about quality of product and whatever. But actually, I think the dynamics that really change a place are the people of that place. And Liverpool has some really outstanding creative and dynamic people, as well as it has some very creative and dynamic uh, industry and, 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 and businesses. And surprising is, is the context for us that we're, we are always changing. We never stand still. So you might come one year and you might think, I've, read, I've got the T-shirt, I've read the postcard, 
if I come back, it'll be the same. Not the case. We always want to surprise. You want to think when you go around the corner, you see something different than you saw last time, yeah? But pleasantly surprised, not, not, not badly surprised. So those, that, that creative and dynamic force connected with innovation and surprise, that, that's what really makes the Liverpool brand stand out. So, you know, we got on the football bit. I'm trying to stay clear of talking about football because we're both Reds fans. Um, But the fact is one of the greatest assets Mm. any city can have is a great sports team. Uh, The old joke about Liverpool's got two great sports football (laughs) clubs, Liverpool and Liverpool Reserves. But there's there's Everton, of course, Premier League club. How do you see that relationship? How important for for Liverpool is it? It's very important for us to have uh, two two teams in in a league which is now of such global significance. So the development of the TV and international rights to show Premier League football has gone out of all proportions, I think. Um, And therefore, that means that internationally, those brands are seen uh, across the world every week. It would be fair to say that Liverpool Football Club is clearly uh, the international uh, recognition of a football club out of those two. And it's pleasing for us that in that regard, Liverpool have continued to grow and develop their markets in uh, places in America, in Australasia, in Malaysia, Indonesia, a a, a huge uh, progress. What we sought to do is to develop uh, opportunities for the destination to sit behind the back of that activity and introduce other opportunities about the place where Liverpool play football, as well as you know to to support the club in developing the quality of the club experience, the ability that people when they come to the city want to to go whether it's a match day or not. Uh, we, we've seen the impact of that in places like Barcelona, Madrid. So the the club's um, you know progress, the club's brand. The ability for us to to exercise opportunities off the back of those brands, massive. And uh, I, I don't think, uh, we sometimes underestimate that value at times, but we have a good relationship with both clubs. I think they are they are they they have different aspirations in one respect. I think it's, you know, when we have a, a Liverpool game, you know, as, as we have this weekend, you, you can't get a hotel bed in the city. Uh, brilliant. When they expand the stadium by another 10,000 next this time next year, even better. Uh, so that, that makes a big difference. And they bring supporters from across the world. Um, that's a very different profile to Everton mm. in one regard. But the fact that Everton are also in that Premier League, they're attracting international players, huge TV coverage, also a massive advantage. As is the likes of Aintree holding the Grand National here. Mm. Uh, as is the opportunities we have to host the Open Golf here, as we did last year mm. and, we, and we will do in, in a couple of years' time. It's really about maximising and sweating the value of these opportunities, so we just don't take them for granted. Probably an area that we did do with the Beatles. So probably in a certain respect, we probably took the Beatles a little bit for granted, and most people felt that the Beatles would run out of, uh, of steam. Mm. Yeah? And actually, the opposite has happened. The reinforcement of that has been just continue, continue, continued, even though we're now in the 50ths of of all kinds of things, yeah. And, uh, you know, I I recall when we did a 50th um, uh, event in New York uh, in 14, uh, around the, connected with the the airport, uh, GFK airport, well, I was. We were blown over, and the mayor of the city was blown over by the 
the uh, the love and affection for for the Beatles. Yeah? So, I I think you know even though we talk about football clubs, you know the Beatles is also a very important product for us. Um, and do we do it as well as we could do? Question mark. We could probably do it a lot better. So I think what we've used is is actually those powerful brands, but then try to basically say if you're interested in this, you might be interested in that. And and we didn't have those other things until you know over the last five or six years we've developed lots of other reasons why you would want to experience Liverpool but use the brand of football brand of Beatles to help attract people to wanting to uh, have a relationship with the city in the first place so we just focused on football and the Beatles so some really positive um, aspects of Liverpool so let's transition and talk about the biggest issues that Liverpool still needs to work on yeah, I mean, I think this is where, you know, I was saying at the start, this is about the honesty of the brand, really in terms of addressing the areas that uh, <clears throat> that we still got to, to, to sort out. And I think what, what has basically happened over the last uh, number of years is that the city's strategy has been to get its city centre sorted out. So it sort of sorted, you know, looked at the core offer and Liverpool, being a very compact city, needed to get the mechanics of its city centre working in a much better way. <clears throat> it's done that very successfully. However, what, what the challenge has been is that that necessarily is not permeated in success terms to certain parts of the deprived areas of the city. And we have pockets within the city that have high levels of deprivation, high levels of worklessness and generations of decline. And the trick is, is how do you take what has been a very successful growth in a city centre and expand it to include those areas that are disenfranchised or disengaged from that. Because otherwise you end up with a polarised community. So you end up with those who are doing very well and those who are doing very badly. And therefore I think the strategy now has been about taking the success of the city centre and expanding that success into other parts of the city. And therefore the development at Liverpool Football Club is doing at Anfield is not so much about the football club, it's about the impact on a part of the city which is heavily deprived. And what that is starting to do is to see regeneration around that area. So regeneration in housing, new businesses seeking to go into that area because the area through the football club is starting to smarten up. Then you start to really start to reach out into those into those pockets. And I don't think Liverpool has ever hidden from the fact that that is actually a, a really strong challenge it has in terms of making sure that its entire resident population feels that the city offers it opportunity, not just one part. But <clears throat> it had to start somewhere. Um, and we had to get the city centre and we had to get elements of the city working better together. Uh, I think the vision of the mayor of the city has been absolutely paramount in ensuring that we don't stop, that we then take that momentum and extend it into other parts of the city. If we do that, and we consider we consistently start to do that, then that long-term vision about bringing those areas that have been disenfranchised will will start to have a route towards success. And uh, I think that is the uh, that is the key issue we need to assess and uh, resolve. Chris, that was absolutely mm. fantastic, and thank you so much for your time today. You mm. know, I'm a huge fan of Liverpool in every mm. respect, mm. and thanks for taking time with us. No, and it, it, it's, it's it's brilliant to have the opportunity of having this sort of discussion because this is 
to me, what it's all about. It's about telling the story of Liverpool to audiences who may be interested in listening to that story and hopefully inspiring them to think about coming to this place to experience it for themselves. That, that's, that's what it's all about. So it was really interesting to listen to Chris talk about how he needs to keep all the different stakeholders in mind, keep them happy and consider them all, and having a coordinated and joined up strategy uh, across all of their marketing efforts. So he also talked about his long-term vision and made a point that a city brand is so much more than a logo and as part of his long-term vision, he wants the, the creative people and the innovative people to drive the, the city's brand and perception globally. So Julian, let's, let's take it back a little bit. I know you're a history buff, so can you tell us about the history of Liverpool? Sure, and I've always felt actually Liverpool is a very specific place. It's got its very own uh, accent, a very distinct accent, culture and humour. Uh, they call it Scouse, which is a kind of a mashup of Irish, Welsh, Lancastrian English, even a bit of Scottish thrown in. And you only have to go 30 minutes or so and it changes radically to what we call Mancunian, the Manchester accent. And it's not only the accent that changes, but the culture as well. And these two great northern cities of Liverpool and Manchester have been fierce rivals in many respects for centuries. But in fact, it's an important point that they are mutually dependent because you could almost say Liverpool exists because of Manchester. As Liverpool was built into the great seaport, it was to ship in the raw materials and ship out the goods actually that were made in those dark satanic mills of Manchester. I really appreciated learning about that, um, you know, that the two have been mutually dependent for a long time and that they do work together. Knowing uh, how serious football is over there, I would have thought that there would be <laughs> some, the claws would be out when talking about one another. Um, but I know that they had one of the first rail ra links too, and the first rail fatality, right? That's it. I mean, in fact, actually, uh, in 1830, they op opened the Liverpool-Manchester Railroad. And uh, the Prime Minister at the time came up to open it. And it was uh, the uh, Duke of Wellington was the Prime Minister. And one of the other ministers, actually a very well-liked guy called William Huskisson, very famous guy, got all enthusiastic. They just completed the first run. He jumped out of the carriage to go and talk to Wellington. And he got ploughed down by one of the other trains and died. And so unfortunately, yes, the first fatality. What a sad place to hold in history. Um, so one thing that I happened to notice about Liverpool was that they have two of everything. So they've got two cathedrals, two soccer teams, and then that famous symbol that stands over the city, which I have pronounced wrong, but the two liverbirds. You got it. That's right. The liverbirds. So, and as with many places, um, you know, history has really shaped this city. It grew from a fishing village into one of the most important ports of the British Empire, with, at its peak in the 1930s, over 800,000 people living there. Nowadays, its population has fallen back to somewhere just under half a million people. And it suffered tremendously in the Second World War through heavy bombing, then recession and high unemployment in the 1980s. And all of this, I think, has helped shape the resolute character of the city and its people. And one of the turning points for the city that Chris mentioned was becoming the European capital of culture in 2008. Um, that seemed to have a very dramatic influence on the city. 
I think becoming European capital of culture really did have an impact and mostly an impact on the confidence of the city. They actually won the the award in 2003. And, and from talking to Chris, they were kind of surprised even I think they won it. Um, but once they won it, they decided they really had to turn it into a turning point in the city's regeneration. And I think they did a great job of that. Sounds like it. So moving forward, we are going on to our second interview, a very exciting one with Julia Lennon, the sister of the great and very fab John Lennon. And it was recorded earlier this month. Where was it recorded again, Julian? In the very famous Cavern Club, which is where the Beatles used to play in the early 1960s. Now, when people think of Liverpool, they probably think of two things. Liverpool Football Club and, of course, the Beatles. And here we are with John Lennon's sister, Julia. And Julia, thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this podcast episode about your hometown, Liverpool. Well, thank you for asking me to do it. Great. We're really delighted. And I have to explain a little bit about where we are right now, because we're in the fabulous Cavern Club, where in the early 1960s, the Beatles used to play. And if you hear, by the way, something in the background that sounds a little bit like a train rumbling overhead, that's because it is, because we're two or three levels down here in the cavern and the train runs, I think, directly above us. But anyway, uh, Julia, first thing is tell us a little bit about John and what it was like having him as an older brother and your memories of him. Well, having John as my older brother and my sister's older brother, my sister Jackie, who's two years, eight months younger than me, so um, a lot younger than John, nine years younger than John. We had John as our older brother, as anyone else would have an older brother. And I know people think, oh, it's John Lennon, he couldn't ever possibly have been normal. Well, you've just made the point that he actually never stopped being normal (laughs) and grounded Mm. underneath it all. And that we grew up with a brother who was old, old enough to uh, entertain us and take care of us, as well as just be a brother. He wasn't one year older or two years older or the baby. Mm. He was old enough to take us to the park, old enough to take us to the pictures, old enough to entertain us while my mother was cooking in the kitchen, which he did, laughing, singing, joking, dancing. Um, You know, he was just John, the older brother. We lived in an area where um, there was a... The, the families were mainly Catholic mm. and they were large families. Mm. So people often had a brother or sister who was 10 years older because they had maybe six, seven, eight brothers and sisters. That was quite normal. Yeah. We were quite a small family yeah. with three. So John was just a normal brother to us. And people say, what was it like growing up with John? as John Lennon, and I say, no, we grew up with John, Mm. and I don't know, and my sister doesn't know, we don't know a different life. Mm. We only know growing up with a brother who became John Lennon, but he was always John to us. Now, they've just erected, I think, a wonderful new statue of the Beatles down at at Pierhead, and Mm -hmm. um, how does it make, I saw a photo of you with it, but how does it make you feel when you look up at that that statue and look at your brother? Well, uber proud. Yeah. Very, yeah. very proud. Um, and I'll tell you a little something. The, the sculptor, there's little acorns in there that are bronzed. 
Okay. And he did an extra one and gave it to me, oh, which is really fantastic. lovely, isn't it? So fantastic. I've got that in my little treasures now. Um, yes, I'm very, very proud. I'm proud of the one at the airport, mm. which I think is stunning. Yeah. Um, and there's a few statues around that really, mm. really mm. sort of get me. Mm. And um, that's going to become one of them, I think. I came into Liverpool last week to see... Oh, it's to see a show at the Echo Arena. Mm. And I deliberately came early because the day that we opened it, mm. it was before I went to the States again, so it was very busy. Yeah. The day that we opened it, I couldn't look at it myself, mm. really. Mm. Um, so I went back last week and walked along and took a lot of photos and just had it to myself for a while. And yes, it's the fact that it's on the pier head, on the, right in front of the Royal Liver Buildings, mm says everything yeah. about the meaning of that statue to this yeah. town. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a colossal draw. I don't do a lot of Facebook. I'm not very good at it. I've got lots of Facebook friends because of I only use it for the Beatles and Liverpool. Yeah. Um, and I don't do a lot. But I did that yeah. and got some pictures on. And the response was astounding. Mm, I'm People sure. now wanting to come to Liverpool to see the statue. And, of course, they'll do everything else. While they're here. Which is great for the city. Yeah, which is fantastic. They're all mega draws, which yeah. is, um, I think John will be proud of that. Let's talk a little bit about your hometown and, and Liverpool. And you grew up in Liverpool. Now, you must have seen a tremendous amount of change in the city over the past few years. What's the most striking thing for you about what's changed? What's changed? Well, Liverpool One is yeah. the giant. Yeah. Um, and do you know, I was prepared being a stuffy old conservative with a small C type of person, leave that building alone and, yeah. you know, it's it's beautiful as yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, I was prepared not to like it at all. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that great white wall, I thought, and it looks like Treblinka prison as well. Mm -hmm. And then when it opened, I was just completely stunned by mm -hmm. it. It's fantastic. What it has done for the city mm -hmm. is just... It's just wonderful. Mm. More, all the seasons, we've got that wonderful ice rink in Shavas Park mm. uh, in, during the winter. We've got shows. We've got everything going on, things that we couldn't put on before. Mm. And, of course, the Echo Arena mm. is just um, your multi, multi, multi yeah. uh, stage, isn't it? <clears throat> it is just absolutely fantastic. And I've seen that in where Paul McCartney comes and it's the entire thing and mm. then I've mm. seen it shrunk down mm. to, you know, it's it's really for the city. It can be used for anything, yeah. any group, yeah. no matter how small or how big is very comfortable in there. And, and obviously 2008, it was European City of Culture and I think that had a big impact on the city, didn't it? Absolutely. What do you think that impact was? Colossal, colossal. <laughs> and weren't we lucky to get the last one before the crash? Um well, we knew in 2000 and about two, three, something, mm. way before, and the preparations were going on mm. long, long mm. in advance. And believe it or not, even at that stage, before 2004, Liverpool was still at the stage where it wasn't quite digging the Beatles, if you like, and yeah. what the Beatles could do for the city, not yes. just for music, no. but for, for the, the city. city. And we had a meeting that was engineered um, by Beatles Story, in fact, down on the Albert Dock. And there were 
uh, a group came over from Elvis Presley Enterprises and they'd already got on this track of what can Elvis do for Memphis. Elvis completely mm. restored mm. Memphis yeah. and is still doing so yeah. with some um, business acumen. Yes. going on behind the love of Elvis. <clears throat> and here we are with the Beatles. And Kevin Kane came over, and I still know him. He's a fabulous fellow. He practically runs Memphis and Elvis Presley Enterprises. And he came over, and he got so impassioned, he stood up and he said, we've got one, and you've got four. four. <laughs> and it was like, it was, all, it was a wake-up call, <clears throat> because... <clears throat> We hadn't really, or Liverpool hadn't really been onto that case no. for many, many, many reasons. Mm. And it was a new way of life, really, mm. wasn't it? Mm. People didn't. Um, Frank Sinatra, where, where was he born? New York, I yeah. think, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, he didn't make New York. No. It was his music no. that mm. defined mm. him forever. Mm. This was a new thing that was happening, that yeah. Elvis could remake Memphis yeah. years after he died, that... Uh, the Beatles could reforge Liverpool way after they'd been performing as the Beatles. Yeah. And boy, has it worked. So for people living in the city, I mean, what do you think now makes the city a great place to live? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Everything. I come through the tunnel and my heart, I, I, I'm not joking you, my heart lifts as I come through that tunnel. Mm. Every time. Mm. I don't know why. And I'm always a bit sad to leave, even if I'm coming back the next mm. day. Mm. Mm. Um, there's something magical that we have always known, even when we couldn't face the outside world and the outside world wanted little to do with us. Mm. Amongst ourselves, we've always been a tight-knit hodgepodge yes. of different nas nationalities. A blend. <laughs> a blend of different nationalities. So, funnily enough, I was in Manchester yesterday talking to a professor there who's, who's a professor of place branding and marketing. And I said, it's remarkable how close Manchester is, but how far away it is in terms of culture. A universe. They're two different places completely. Different architecture. Less, less than an hour. Different architecture, yeah. different feel. The yeah. people are different. Yeah. Everything's different. Yes. And, and Liverpool's got a very distinct identity. I think, and you may know better than me, I think I heard, and I keep saying it so I hope it's true, we are the only city in the UK with our backs entirely to the country. Yeah. We face out to sea. Yeah. We're just looking at America. Yeah. And <laughs> when was it it's said true. that in, um, was it the 1870s in the big trades where we were making money hand over fist at that time, cotton trade, um, weren't we declared as the extra state of America by whichever president it was? Okay. I'm sure we Liverpool was declared as a state as of America. As an additional state. Yes. Yeah. Rather than, we almost align ourselves to the states. Yeah, I agree. And Like enough, Ireland does, like the west of Ireland. Where are they looking? Yeah, and, and it's funny, it's the feeling I have about Liverpool. I said this to somebody last night talking about Liverpool. And the, and the fact is, I think, well, one of the things I think the city should get over is don't compete <laughs> internally with the likes of Manchester. Compete with the world. We're different. This, this city is a very special place and yes. it's global. Yes. And I think because of things like the Beatles and the football and the music, you think, well, where did they get the inspiration from the music? It was the, it was the States. Everything so that was going on that came... international. Yes, yes, that came from the States. Yeah, 
via it's, sailors, via the ships, yeah. via the seamen's mission. Yeah, including then you think about the food culture and all of that came from outside. Exactly. And, uh, exactly. So I think that's really been the secret of what's helped form this. Now, just before we start to wrap up, I want to ask you a really difficult question. And I always ask this question on these podcasts is, um, if you had to just have three words for this city to sum it up, what three words sums up Liverpool for you? Come here soon. Okay. <laughs> that's a pretty good answer. I like that. Come here soon. And that's actually a message for anybody listening to this, because I guarantee you will have a great time. It's a great city. Yes. There's great things to see. There's uh, great museums. There's great food. We've got eight museums here, more than any outside London. Yeah. We've got more Georgian buildings. Our architecture is beyond fantastic. More and Georgian parks. buildings and the parks. than anywhere outside London. And down on the Albert Dock, we have the biggest clump of Georgian architecture than anywhere else in the UK, including yeah. London. Yeah. And our parks stunning. are stunning. Yeah. Even Central Park in in New York is based on Birkenhead Park. Yeah. Yeah. Just just wonderful. So, um, Julia, we're out of time, but it's been absolutely super to meet you and we appreciate your time. And most importantly, your memories and sharing your fab city with us. Well, thank you for asking me to promote this fabulous city. Thanks very much. Thank you. Wow. John Lennon's sister. We get some seriously great people on this podcast. And that one, though, was just it was so amazing. Um, Julian, were you a Beatles fan growing up? Well, they were a bit before my time, but yes, I'm a huge Beatles fan. And I'd say, actually contend that they're probably the most influential music group ever. Their influence has really informed the cultural scene of the city of Liverpool. And they reckon it's still worth over £80 million a year to the local economy in terms of tourism, visitors, and can account for somewhere around 2,000 jobs. So... My guess is that you've been to Beatles sites in Liverpool like Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. I, I imagine that they've been able to create an entire industry around these these Beatles sightseeing adventures. Absolutely, they have. And um, I've been to every one of them and I've been a few times. I'm that much of a, as we say, an anorak. Um, I love all that stuff. And I can recommend listeners actually to check out what's called Fab Four Tours where you get to be driven around the city in a black cab and visit all the Beatles, significant places like their homes and where they played, with drivers who know all the Beatles' history and stories. So just check out Fab Four Tours online. That's so cool. It's, it's so interesting that a, you know, a band was able to create all these, these sub-industries within a city. Um, so I'm sure when you're cruising around on the Fab Four tours, you are taking note of the architecture of Liverpool. And I noticed um, when I was doing research for this episode that there is such a distinct and, and interesting architecture, architectural style of the city. And it seems to have more of its fair share of impressive buildings, new and old. Um, they have fantastic renovation in the docks areas with restaurants and museums, such as the Tate Liverpool, and then a great new shopping area, Liverpool One. The renovation in the city is really an ongoing and impressive effort, um, and it's just interesting to hear, and we heard a little bit from Chris about how the city's going about it. Now, one thing that I find particularly fascinating is the creative class. What do you think of Liverpool in that respect, Julian? 
Well, as you can probably tell, I think Liverpool is a great city. And it has the three key components to attract what we call the creative class and achieve uh, a renaissance as a global city. And Liverpool was Britain's most global city, actually, for most of the period when Britain had an empire. Liverpool was both a global influencer as well as globally influenced. Anyway, firstly, Liverpool is a city with edge. You feel it from the buildings, the streets, the bars, the restaurants, the clubs. You even feel it in the people. There's an edge to the place. It's a big city with big city confidence, but at the same time, friendly and very walkable. It's actually difficult to get lost because you have the river to guide you. You fall in it if you go off, off the wrong way. Um, the second thing Liverpool offers right at the moment is great value. Because of the change in the city's economic fortunes, I'd say it's pretty affordable as a place to live and work. And, you know, that's really important to the creative class who tend to move to areas that offer decent costs for building, startup businesses, as well as offering interesting accommodation. So warehouses, older factories, dock areas, it's got all of that. And for me, Liverpool has the same components that you find in a New York in the late 60s and early 70s or Berlin around 10 years ago. Very similar dynamics. And then finally, it's a city that is tolerant. It has space for all types and an attitude that allows you to be yourself. And that makes me feel very comfortable as well. It's one of the things I think the creative class seek out. Character, edge, values, tolerance. And for me, that's a pretty good list. Well, Liverpool, we love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, was that like the worst thing I've ever done that's been recorded? <laughs> I had to. I had to. Um, unfortunately... It's that time and we are out of it. We need to wrap up now, but we have more about this on our website about Liverpool, so check it out. And for now, it's goodbye from me, the girl in Chicago. And it's goodbye from me, the guy from Stockholm. This podcast is based on the book, Wish You Were Here by Julian Stubbs, available on Amazon. It is produced up in the clouds by the world's first global cloud-based agency, upthereeverywhere.com.